Thanks uh, to those of you who stuck with us through a, a long and fascinating day at the uh, 2016 Cato Institute Surveillance Conference. Um, our last pair of uh, flash talks uh, is going to focus on some of the uh, global aspects of U.S. surveillance. At Cato, of course, we're big fans of the Constitution. We tend to focus very much on uh, the Fourth Amendment and uh, domestic law and how it regulates surveillance of American citizens and their rights. Uh, but the scope of American surveillance, both for law enforcement and intelligence purposes, is now really global in scale. Uh, and so as a result, it has implications for uh, the human rights of people around the world, but also for our uh, uh, political and diplomatic and economic relationships uh, with other countries, in particular the economic interests of U.S. companies uh, that hope to do business around the globe. So to uh, talk about two aspects of that, we have uh, Alan Butler, a senior counsel with the Electronic Privacy Information Center, who will talk about uh, the Schrems case and the ways uh, some U.S. surveillance is creating problems uh, in Europe and uh, uh, Professor Jen Daskal will talk about uh, trying to articulate some principles for cross-border data exchange as it becomes ever thornier figuring out whose jurisdiction applies to the kind of data law enforcement needs in investigations. We'll begin with Alan Butler. Thanks, Julian and Decato for having me. I'm happy to be here today to speak with you about uh, a new international dimension to this debate over U.S. surveillance authorities. Uh, as I'm talking, as many of you probably know, about the Schrems decision uh, of the Court of Justice of the European Union last year. This decision really upended uh, the primary mechanism that was used by businesses uh, to, to transfer personal data between the U.S. and the European Union. Um, it also led to a major renegotiation of privacy agreements between the two governments and has opened up new avenues to challenge uh, these surveillance activities. Now, historically, U.S. surveillance reform movement here has focused on statutory and constitutional limitations, as Julian mentioned, that apply domestically, if you think about the debates over FISA and the Patriot Act and ECPA. Um, and there's certainly been international groups who have been engaged and vocal on these issues, um, but, but these issues haven't necessarily played, these international issues haven't necessarily played a major role in executive branch or congressional policymaking on surveillance. But that all changed after 2013 and the Snowden revelations. When the U.S. came under increasing scrutiny in other countries, especially in the EU, for their surveillance activities. Um, in the EU in particular, there's a strong history of privacy protections and independent uh, enforcement authority by uh, regulators in each of the member countries. And traditionally, these, uh, these data protection authorities have focused a lot of their attention on the actions of private companies. Um, but the PRISM program provided for the European courts a clear link between the actions of companies that collect and transfer personal data and the surveillance activities of the U.S. government. And it certainly didn't help that Section 702, under which PRISM is authorized, sort of specifically ignores the privacy interests of foreign citizens in the U.S. But at the time, prior to the Schrems case, it was not exactly clear what leverage the EU would have um, to, you know, in a sense, push back on the U.S. for this uh, broader surveillance that was being revealed. Then an individual, Max Schrems, who's an Austrian law student, filed a uh, complaint with the Irish Data Protection Authority um, alleging that Facebook had transferred his data to the U.S. and there, thus exposed him to these surveillance activities. 
Now, Facebook has major business operations in Ireland for tax and other reasons, and so the Irish Data Protection Authority had uh, the authority to bring claims against Facebook for violating uh, the EU Privacy Directive and fundamental rights under the EU Charter. The EU Privacy Directive specifically applies to any company that is a, processes personal data in Europe and also limits the ability of companies to transfer that data to other countries, uh, in particular when those countries do not provide adequate protection for that data, or essentially equivalent protection uh, for that data relative to what's provided in the EU. So um, that transfer of personal data between the EU and the US specifically has historically been authorized under an agreement that those two governments entered into in 2000 called the Safe Harbor Agreement. Basically, they created a safe harbor, a set of principles that countries could sign on to and agree to and therefore transfer data freely between the two countries without, uh, in theory, violating the directive or EU law. And this was called into question in the Schrems case because Mr. Schrems alleged to the Data Protection Authority that despite the safe harbor agreement, Facebook was violating the directive and violating his rights under the charter by transferring his data and exposing him to US surveillance. Now the Data Protection Authority in Ireland uh, chose not, initially chose not, found that it couldn't bring an action against Facebook because Facebook was abiding by safe harbor. And ultimately, through a suit brought by Mr. Schrems against the Data Protection Authority, uh, a question was certified up to the highest court in the EU, the Court of Justice. And that question was whether that safe harbor agreement itself was valid, what, or whether that violated uh, both the, the fundamental rights in the EU and the EU Privacy Directive. And ultimately, the Court of Justice did find that the safe harbor agreement was invalid. They held that in October of 2015, and this was sort of the bombshell that dropped on the US-EU privacy world last year. And central to this case was the surveillance alleged in Mr. Schrems' complaint and revealed in Snowden revelations and this hook between US companies and US surveillance activities. And ultimately what the Court of Justice found was that the safe harbor agreement was you know, nothing more essentially than an agreement between the US and the EU that didn't itself provide for that adequate protection that's required under the directive. And this has been, it's hard to understate how much of a fundamental shift this has caused in the relations between the US and the EU, as Julian alluded to uh, before. This has really created an entirely new dimension to the debate over surveillance activities in that now there are all of these companies that engage in these transfers of data every day. There's lots of money at stake. And by knocking out Safe Harbor, the Court of Justice really uh, put a lot of uh, uncertainty and a lot of risk for companies transferring data that are worried, concerned now that there will be you know, major enforcement actions brought against them, suits against them for violating uh, the directive, and the deal that's been negotiated in the, in the time since the Schrems decision came down, which is called Privacy Shield, it's not at all clear that it would be that it will be upheld by the Court of Justice either, because again, the Court of Justice ultimately focused on both the the limited scope of, of U.S. Uh, privacy protections and limited redress uh, for EU citizens for U.S. surveillance activities. 
And so with those two sort of looming questions, there is now a new case being brought again in Ireland, um, again related to a complaint by Mr. Schrems, this time by the Irish Data Protection Authority itself. And this case, which is likely to go back up to the uh, European Court of Justice, has to do with uh, the only alternative mechanism at, at the moment before Privacy Shield was put into place to transfer data. And these are contractual agreements between data processors in the EU and the US um, that are also provided as a mechanism under the directive. So here, the companies essentially enter into a private agreement um, that is defined by a decision by the European Commission as adequately protecting personal data. But the same fundamental question is at issue, which is if a company in the EU is transferring all of this, either private communications, personal data to the uh, US, are they therefore exposing those EU individuals to surveillance activities of the US government without providing adequate protection, without providing for adequate redress? So really, it puts real money at stake in, this, in the debate over the scope of these surveillance authorities and these surveillance protections. And I think it raises a lot of fundamental questions about how privacy law will be structured in the US. I mean, one issue that's going to be coming up over the next um, 12 months is the renewal of the 702 authorities themselves. Um, another issue uh, that we're going to see in the next few months, and certainly within the next 12 months, is whether uh, a new administration will carry forward uh, some of the privacy provisions that were adopted by the Obama administration. And you know, people have different views about how protective or not those provisions may be. But one of the fundamental flaws, I think, that the European Court is likely to recognize in relying on executive orders, for example, is that they can be rescinded. They, they, don't, they don't exist permanently or semi-permanently in law. And so you know, it will be a real test in these new cases and a real measurement of what's happening in a new administration for the European courts to be able to you know, watch as privacy law changes in real time in the US and react to that. And that's really this new dimension, is to have an outside view of what's happening with US surveillance authorities going forward. Um, so that's the short 15-minute <laughs> version of the Schrems case. There's obviously a lot more issues there. But I think you know going forward, uh, these, it's going to continue, these cases, because there are several now, are going to continue to raise really fundamental questions about how U.S. structures its privacy protections, especially whether it, to what extent it grants protections to non-U.S. persons abroad. So, thank you. Thanks, Alex. And So, so first, a huge thanks to Cato for putting on this terrific conference and to Julian for inviting me here to speak today. So I want to talk about what I see as two sides of the same coin, which is US data that happens to be located outside the territorial boundaries of the United States, and foreign governments need to access data that happens to be within the territorial boundaries of the United States. And I'll give you the punchline from the outset. Um, in my view, the current set of rules are imposing arbitrary limits on law enforcement's ability to access data based on where that data happens to be held. 
It's an attempt, in my opinion, to kind of blithely transpose rules that apply to other forms of tangible property onto data without recognizing the unique and the different features of data, including its rapid mobility, its divisibility, and perhaps most importantly, for these purposes, the fact of third-party control, the fact that companies like Facebook, Microsoft, Google could tend to control where our data is located without us as the users having any say in that fact. And these together make location an increasingly arbitrary and normatively unsound basis for limiting law enforcement jurisdiction. And while these limitations are often described as privacy protective, they actually undercut privacy as well as security and economic growth and innovation. So let me start with the problem of US law enforcement access to data across borders. This was the issue that was decided this summer by the Second Circuit in what's known as the Microsoft Ireland case. I assume everyone here is familiar with this case. It started back in December of 2013 when the US government served a warrant pursuant to the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which I'll also call ECPA, on Microsoft seeking data associated with a particular account. Microsoft turned over the non-content data, things like name, IP address, billing information, but it refused to turn over the content of communications, saying that those were stored in Dublin, Ireland, that the United States warrants jurisdiction only extends to the territorial boundaries of the United States, and that therefore the warrant was invalid. The government fought back, as the government put it, and two lower courts agreed. This was not a traditional search warrant that involved US law enforcement officials crossing over into Ireland's territory and seizing property there. Rather, it was directed at Microsoft, requiring that Microsoft disclose the sought-after communications. Yes, the data was in Ireland, but Microsoft employees sitting in Redmond, Washington, could access the data without ever leaving the territory of the United States. So it was a territorial, not an extraterritorial search, akin to a compelled disclosure order issued pursuant to a subpoena. Now, the Second Circuit reversed, ultimately siding with Microsoft and concluding that the relevant statute is about privacy, not disclosure, that it was an extraterritorial search, and that the United States Warrant Authority pursuant to ECPA extends only to data that's physically located within the United States territory. This case has since and, and during the litigation, been this, the, the ruling has been described as a privacy win by many. I'm not so sure that this is true. First, remember that here the government got a warrant based on probable cause. There is no question that it would have been able to access that data had the data been located within the United States, and there would be no privacy violation assuming that everything was fine with the warrant. It doesn't become a privacy violation just because the data is moved outside the territorial borders. In fact, this case is arguably bad for privacy unless one just thinks that any obstacle in the way of US law enforcement is a good thing. The end result means that if the United States law enforcement officials seek data that happens to be outside our borders, it needs to now make a mutual legal assistance request for that data. And then the foreign government, should it choose to respond, accesses that data according to its own standards. In many, I would say in most situations, those standards are lower, they're less protective than a warrant based on probable cause overseen by an independent magistrate or judge. 
And second, even if this case is about privacy, it's not at all obvious that, as the Second Circuit concluded, that the privacy intrusion occurs in Ireland. Remember, Microsoft already has access to this data as a caretaker, and in fact moves it around without notice to or consent by the user. Any additional privacy intrusion, it seems, takes place not when Microsoft moves the data, which it does anyway, but when that data is turned over to the US government. That happens in the United States, not Ireland. This ruling also has a number of potentially significant practical implications for the US ability to access data lawfully, um, even when the target's US-based, a US citizen and the government has probable cause to access that data because of where it's held. This happens for at least three reasons. First, the slowness of the mutual legal assistance process. It can be too long to be useful. Second, the United States only has mutual legal assistance treaties with about a third of the world's countries. It may not have a workable means of accessing sought-after data. And third, not all companies are structured like Microsoft, which has a, a relatively location-driven approach to how it stores and accesses data. <laughs> companies like Google and Facebook, for example, are constantly moving data around in ways that can make it sometimes hard to even ascertain where particular data is located at the particular moment that a warrant is served. But more importantly, a company like Google, for example, has structured its operations so that its data can only be accessed by law enforcement teams that are located in the United States. Now let's assume that the United States government serves a warrant on Google for data associated with a particular account. If some or all of that data is outside the United States, Google can't lawfully respond under the Second Circuit's ruling. But if the US government then goes to that foreign jurisdiction, the foreign government says, we'd love to help you, but we can't. We don't have jurisdiction over the people who can actually access that data. You do. And the practical result is it means that there's no way for law enforcement to access that data, even pursuant to a warrant based on probable cause. Now, a big company like Google obviously can restructure to resolve these problems, but at least in the short term, this is the situation we're in. And I think that this result has two concerning side effects. First, it encourages data location mandates as a means of ensuring access to data. Now, this isn't so much a trend in the United States, but rulings like the Microsoft Ireland case further incentivize foreign jurisdictions to mandate that data is held there, in part to protect against what's often perceived as the big bad reach of US law enforcement. The, rea the reality is, however, as I've already stated, that in many cases, the standards that those foreign governments will apply will be less protective of privacy rights than the standards that apply in the United States. And second, I think the reality is, is that powerful governments will find a way to access data if there is a sufficient need. And my fear is that a ruling like this shifts surveillance efforts into less transparent, less accountable, more surreptitious means of accessing data that a government like the United States might, might seek to access without independent review and oversight by a judge. Now, the government's appealing this ruling. Um, I also think um, that there's problems with the government's position as well, and that the better the ideal solution is for Congress to step in and get involved. I encourage everyone to read Judge Lynch's incredible, really excellent concurring opinion in the Second Circuit on this point. And in my view, an ideal amendment would permit the United States to access the communications content of its targets pursuant to a warrant 
in investigations over serious crime without regard to location of data, but also require the government and the reviewing court to take into account countervailing factors like the nationality and location of the target, like the nature of the crime, like the laws of other nations that might preclude access and the potential conflict for for, with foreign nations, so as to help protect against a situation in which the United States claims access to data anywhere and everywhere without regard to the sovereign interests of other states. So now I'll briefly turn to the converse problem, foreign government seeking access to data that's located within the United States borders. So the same statute um, that, that is an issue in the Microsoft Ireland case also precludes U.S. companies from turning over data to foreign-based providers, content of communications. So think about the same problem from a foreign government, per government perspective. UK law enforcement is investigating a London murder. The target, the witness, and the victim are all in London. If the, if the alleged perpetrator were using a UK-based provider, the UK could go government, the UK law enforcement could go to that provider and get access to that data probably within days, if not sooner. If instead the alleged perpetrator is using Gmail and UK law enforcement officials go to Google, Google says go through that mutual legal assistance treaty process. It takes an average of 10 months um, for a response to be sent back to, to the UK. And just as US law enforcement officials are frustrated by the Microsoft Ireland decision, so too are foreign governments as a result of the inability to access data that happens to be US controlled. Um, this is also, in my view, leading to a number of concerning responses. Again, it's further encouraging data localization mandates, which, as I've already said, permit governments to access data according to their own standards, often less privacy protective than the standards that exist in the United States. These kinds of mandates are also costly. They undercut the growth and the efficiency of the internet, and they potentially shut out small startups from entering into the market because they simply can't comply with the cost of holding data in multiple jurisdictions. Um, we're also seeing governments increasingly assert extraterritorial jurisdiction without regard to the conflict of laws that ensues. And this is not just an academic hypothetical problem. In January of 2015, there was a Microsoft employee, executive, who was arrested in Brazil. Facebook's faced similar problems as well. And as I've already said, these kinds of restrictions also further incentivize, encourage surreptitious means of accessing data. So as with the Microsoft Ireland case, we, we need a solution. And I think we have a chance to design a solution that yields a race to the top, or at least the raising of baseline substantive and procedural protections across the board, rather than a race to the bottom where every nation is seeking access to data based on their own rules um, without regard to things like the nationality and the location of the target, and many rules, and in many cases based on rules that are not particularly privacy protective. Um, so recognizing this problem, um, the Department of Justice submitted legislation in the spring that would lift the blocking provision in certain circumstances. Um, specifically, it would allow the executive branch to enter into executive agreements with other governments, um, allowing those governments to directly access content of communications from US providers so long as they were not accessing data of US citizens or persons in the United States. In order to be able to enter into this these types of agreements, the Attorney General and Secretary of State would have to certify that the country met 
robust substantive and procedural protections for privacy and civil liberties. And the requests would also have to meet a number of requirements, including that the fact that they were particularized, that they were time limited, um, that they were reviewed or overseen by a judge or independent authority, that the information was not used to infringe on freedom of speech, subject to minimization re requirements, subject to periodic compliance reviews by the United States. And these agreements would also have to be reciprocal, meaning that the foreign government would have to commit to allow the United States to make direct requests to foreign-based providers for US citizens' data or data of persons located in the United States. Now, we can debate the specifics of these kinds of proposals, and I think there's areas where I would suggest changes. But I would suggest that this is the right approach and one that would, if adopted, raise baseline privacy protections as compared to the current situation where governments are increasingly being incentivized to pass things like mandatory data localization requirements. Such an approach also reflects the general premise that the United States has a legitimate interest in setting the specific substantive and procedural rules that govern access to data for its citizens and residents, but does not have a similar justification in imposing the specific rules um, of a warrant based on probable cause when a foreign government seeking to access data of its citizens outside the United States so long as certain baseline protections are in place. Now, notably, the US and UK have a draft agreement that would allow UK law enforcement officials to, to do exactly what I'm talking about, directly compel the production of communications content from US-based providers in certain circumstances. But this can't happen without legislation. Um, I know it's a hard time predi to predict what's going to happen in Congress over the next few years. But I would say that I think this is and should be an issue that crosses party lines. And Congress has an important chance to design a rational and comprehensive approach to the question of law enforcement access to data across borders, addressing both the question of US government or reach and also amending its laws to allow foreign governments increased access to US held data according to baseline privacy protections when certain conditions are met. In my view, these jurisdictional rules should focus on things like the location and the nationality of the target rather than the location of the data, and that failure to take these steps will have negative consequences for our security, our economy, and our privacy. Thanks.